0: Um, If you want to follow along in the passage that we're reading today, we are in Luke chapter 4, Luke 4 verses 14 through 30. Uh, If you were here last week, this passage here is picking up right where we left off last week after the temptation of Jesus, Luke 4, uh, 14 through 30. And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through all the surrounding district, and he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, as was his custom. He entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. The book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all were speaking well of him, and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, No doubt you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you, I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the sky was shut up from the three years and six months, when a great famine came all over the land. And yet Elijah was sent to none other, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they got up and drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of a hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. <clears throat> Nathaniel Hawthorne uh, is, a, is a great American author. He has a story called The Great Stone Face. Uh, it's a short story. Uh, and in the, the story that's set, uh, there's a man named Ernest that lives in the small community right on the edge of a mountain. And and there's a big face that's been carved into the face of the mountain that everybody in the village can see. And they have a prophecy in that village that one day the man whose face that is supposed to resemble will come back to the community and be with them. And so this community Passes this story along, and every time they look at the great stone face, they know that somebody's going to come along and and fulfill that prophecy that they were the ones that the stone face was carved after. And as the story goes, different people come into the community that the community wishes would fulfill the prophecy of the great stone face. So the first man that comes through Uh, I I believe his name was Gathergold, Mr. Gathergold. Well, he was a rich man from the community. He became a millionaire, and when he came back into the community, he comes giving all of his wealth to all of the people. So, of course, you could imagine uh, the community that he's from, they're excited, hoping, well, this must be the great stone face. After all, he has all of this money, and he's giving it to us. And the boy Ernest that has always watched the great stone face he doesn't buy it. He, he just he looks at Mr. Gathergold and he thinks, no, I don't think this is the great stone face. But the people, they think he's the great stone face. And as he gives away his money, all of a sudden he runs out of money and he leaves the community again and people go about their way and they mutter to themselves... I don't think that was the great stone face. I think we were mistaken. We'll wait for the next man to come around. Well, the next man that comes around, uh, I believe his name was Old uh, Blood and Thunder. And, And he's a general from the army, and they talk about the major campaigns that he helped win for the American military. And as he walks into town... He has a procession in front of him and behind him. And so the people think, aha, this is it. This is the great stone face. This is the man that this face was carved after, and he's come back into the community. And so people just praise him. And he sits and and he tells entertaining stories about the wars and the battles that he won. But over time, the stories become repetitive They're not as exciting as when they first met him. And then sure enough, he leaves the community and the people say to themselves, well, we must have been mistaken. That must not be the great stone face that we've been waiting for. And then sure enough, another man comes into town and this man was a senator. He was a politician and he was running for the presidency. And so everybody said, well, this is it. This is the great stone face after all. What more powerful person is there in the world than an American president? And so they're excited, and, and he comes in, and he makes promises about how much better their community is going to be and, and what he's going to do when he gets into office. And so people praise him and say, this has got to be the great stone face. Do you see a pattern going on here? All of a sudden, he doesn't win the presidency. He leaves the community and people say to themselves, I don't think that guy was, was the great stone face that we were waiting for. And the point that Hawthorne is making in his story is that we oftentimes have an expectation as to what our Savior should look like. And we oftentimes have personal agendas that we will put on those in power or those maybe in our lives and expect if you would just fulfill this, In my life, I would have a great life. In fact, I heard one marriage psychologist say that she's found the biggest issue in marriages today is not that people don't take their marriage seriously. She said the problem is people think that their partner is there to fix all of their problems in their life. And that's just not true. She said oftentimes she'll have couples come into counseling and when they start talking about, well, how did you first meet? What did you see in one another? What she starts to realize is they had expectations on their partner to fix them and give them a better life. And lo and behold, what happens when you get into marriage? Are both people perfect? I can tell you're holding back your laughter. But the reality is, we tend to have this in our lives, much like in the story of the great stone face. We have these expectations of what somebody should be, and then when they don't fulfill those expectations, we're heartbroken. And we wonder, why didn't they fulfill those? Well, this is kind of what's going on with Jesus when he goes back into his hometown of Nazareth, is he's going back into his hometown, and people have expectations Not just of who he should be or what he should be, but they also have expectations as to what the Messiah would be, who God promised would save Israel from their enemies. And they have these expectations, and so when Jesus comes and talks about his Messiahship, how he is the chosen one from God to save his people, they sort of laugh it off. And it all starts when Jesus goes into the synagogue and it says, this was Jesus' custom. Now, what that means is Jesus is a rabbi. Every Saturday, uh, Jewish men and women would practice the Sabbath. They they wouldn't work all day, and the first thing they would do in the morning is they would go to synagogue. And this is a place where the scriptures were read and expounded on, much like how we have church on Sundays. The Jewish people had this on Saturdays. So it was Jesus' custom as a rabbi to attend synagogue, and oftentimes if you had a visiting rabbi come in from a neighboring community, or if you lived outside of your hometown but came back to visit, oftentimes your synagogue would ask you, would you like to share the scripture this Saturday? So Jesus goes in, as was his custom, he would go into the synagogue, and they asked him, would you share a word from the scriptures for us? And so the attendant gives the scroll to Jesus and he chooses for Jesus the scroll of Isaiah. At least we think that it was the attendant that grabbed the scroll of Isaiah. could very well be that Jesus said, hand me Isaiah. In any case, we know that Jesus is looking through the scroll for chapter 61 of Isaiah. And when he reads that passage, it's a very familiar passage to the Jewish people. And this passage is about the Messiah. This passage is referenced in the book of Isaiah as being about the one that God would send to save his people. And some of the topics that are brought up in that passage is that the Messiah will come in and he'll give recovery of sight to the blind. He will heal those who need healing. He will lift oppression from those who are slaves. And later on in the book of uh, of Isaiah, or I'm sorry, of chapter 61 of Isaiah is, is that God will enact justice through this Messiah and God will save his people from their enemies. And so when Jesus is reading this passage, everybody that's listening has an idea as to what the Messiah is going to do for them in their life. They're hearing this and they're thinking, oh man, this is my favorite part. I love this chapter of Isaiah. My favorite part is when God uh, 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 takes care of our enemies And wipes them from the face of the earth. That's my favorite part. And maybe some other people are looking at this passage and they're thinking, this is it. This is it. I love this part because this says that that we will get this whole region back. That we won't be living under Roman rule. We'll be living by ourselves once again. And people are coming into this passage with an expectation. And when Jesus gets done, he puts the scroll down And how he expounds on the passage is he says, upon reading this word today, this has been fulfilled. And what he means by that is, now that I've read this passage to you, you've heard the passage about the Messiah, I am that Messiah. So this is Jesus' proclamation to the Jewish people, specifically the people within his community. He was raised in Nazareth. This is his hometown. He comes in and he announces to them, I am the Messiah. And what the scripture says is at first, the people are pretty amazed at what Jesus is saying. In fact, word about him is spreading all over the region. So when he comes back, they're probably excited that he's preaching. And then when he says, I'm the Messiah, they're starting to think about it. Well, he preaches really well. And I've heard he's done some really good things in the area. And And I've heard he's a very successful rabbi. But then something happens, and I don't know if you caught it in the scripture reading. They say really good things about him, and then they say, Isn't this Joseph's son? Isn't Joseph just a carpenter in our community? Yeah, Joseph isn't much. He's not like a fellow rabbi. He's not one of the scribes. He's not a a descendant of this person or that person. This Jesus guy, he was raised by Joseph just down the road from us. Isn't he just a carpenter? And at first, you might want to read it. I know I might want to read it in a way where I think, oh, well, they're just asking the question, isn't this Joseph's son? But clearly what's going on here is they're starting to have doubts about Jesus himself because Jesus is not living up to the expectation that they would have of a Messiah. They're stopping to think, I didn't think the Messiah would be born of a carpenter's son. Well, I didn't think the Messiah would do this or do that. To give you an idea of of maybe what started circulating in the conversation. Um, just this last summer, I found out that Eau Claire, and I should say this up front, I mean no offense to Eau Claire, but uh, I just found out that Hank Aaron got his start in this community. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. I just heard an amen. <laughs> but I just heard that over the summer. I, we were out by Carson Park, and, and uh, one of... Uh, Somebody here in the church said, oh, yeah, there's a statue of Hank Aaron. And do you know what my response was? I bet you can guess it. Why? You know, I was just like, I, you know, why is Hank Aaron in this community? And he said, well, he got his start here. And you can imagine my response to that. No. No, Hank Aaron didn't play for Eau Claire. Did he? And, and all of a sudden, we got into the conversation, and he started sharing, yeah, Hank Aaron got his start. His baseball start was in this community. I forget which Eau Claire team, but it was the Eau Claire uh, baseball team here in the community. I, I know several of you will let me know what that team name is after service here today. Uh, but see, that's the point. That, that, that's the kind of response I have. Hank Aaron is one of the greatest baseball players to ever live. And when I find out that he's from Eau Claire, Wisconsin, I just think, if you would have said Milwaukee, if you would have said uh, Minneapolis, Detroit, uh, Cincinnati, I would have thought, oh, well, that makes perfect sense. Those are Major League Baseball communities. But I wouldn't think Eau Claire would have somebody like Hank Aaron. That's the conversation that people are having about Jesus. The difference is, as somebody was explaining to me that Hank Aaron started here, I believed them. Not at first. At first, I was a little, no, you're, you're pulling my leg here. But then as they started to explain the histories, oh, that makes sense. And then, of course, I checked the internet to make sure I, you know, they were telling the truth. Because the internet never lies. The difference is, I started to believe that Hank Aaron got his start in this community. Those who were in the synagogue were going the other way as they were talking about their doubts of Jesus. All of a sudden, they started to question, I don't think this is the Messiah. I don't think this is the person that God has sent to free us from our captives. I don't think this is the man that's supposed to bring us into the kingdom of God. You can imagine the, the tone and the change that's happening in this moment because Jesus' response is, He knows it. He knows that that would be their response. Because He says back to them, He says, No doubt many of you would say the proverb to me, Physician, go heal yourself. Now, we're not quite sure what that proverb means, Physician, go heal yourself but we're pretty sure that it was a saying that was used in that time period, and it was a saying that basically said, prove it. So you would make a statement about yourself or about something, and somebody would say, well, physician, go heal yourself. That would be them saying, well, prove it. Give me some evidence that what you're saying is true. And so Jesus is getting ahead of the doubts and the unbelief in the room, and he says, many of you are going to say to me here, go ahead and prove to us how you're the Messiah. And he even gets ahead of them and says, I bet many of you are even going to ask me to prove a miracle like what I did in Capernaum. And he makes this point. He says, a prophet is not without honor in his hometown. Now, what does that mean? Well, it's a statement, again, that would have been used in Jesus' day. And the statement is a callback to Israel's prophets that God would send them. Uh, Israel would be going through a tumultuous time. God would send them a prophet. And guess how the Israelites treated that prophet? Very poorly. Oftentimes, the Israelites wouldn't listen to the word of the prophet, wouldn't take his advice as to what they should do, and they would ignore him. And so Jesus' point is, hey, listen, I'm from this community. You want me to prove that I'm the Messiah? That won't matter. You guys don't believe me. I'm a prophet. This is my hometown. Therefore, you won't listen to me. You won't believe what I have to say. And he gives some examples from the Old Testament as to what he means by this. The first comes from First Kings, which is about Elijah. And when Israel was going through a drought, he says, notice there were plenty of widows in the nation of Israel. There were plenty of widows that could have taken care of Elijah, but God sent Elijah outside of the Israelite community to be taken care of. And it's a callback to First Kings when, when Elijah is in need and he goes to a widow's house in Sidon. And when he goes there, the widow takes care of him and, and Elijah blesses the widow with food and, and, and heals her son and takes care of her. But Jesus' point is, God would have sent Elijah to anybody in Israel, but he knew that Israel wouldn't accept a prophet from God. And Jesus says, I'm the same way. I've come into my hometown and you haven't even accepted me as Messiah even though you know it's the truth. And he gives another example. He says, same thing happened with Elisha. In 2 Kings, Elisha is called on by a general from another army, from the Syrian army. That's Naaman. And Naaman asks him, would you heal me of my leprosy? And so Elijah heals him of his leprosy. And Jesus says, there were plenty of lepers in Israel, that could have been healed of their leprosy. But God chose to heal somebody outside of the Israelite community because they did not have belief that God would heal them. What point is Jesus making here? The point Jesus is making is your faith is not predicated on some evidence that God has to give you. Your faith, our faith, should not start with Prove it. Prove it, God. If you just prove it to me, then I'll start to follow you. Then I'll start to believe in you. The point Jesus is making is you should have faith in him because of who he is and who he says he is. This is what happens when we come into close contact with God. God reveals himself to us and we believe from the heart. Now, sometimes that's coupled with miracles. Sometimes that's coupled with God demonstrating his power and his love. But oftentimes, God is doing this when we're in a close relationship with him to the point that we don't need to ask him, Would you prove your faithfulness to me? Would you prove your power? Instead, we just believe it from the heart. We know that what he's saying is true. And of course, when Jesus says this to the people in the synagogue, They get mad at him. They get upset. And it should be noted that they don't have the authority to give punishment to anybody in their community. If they really wanted to punish Jesus, they would have to arrest him. They would have to bring him into the city, and they would have to try him with with the Jewish council. But they're so enraged, they want to take care of business all on their own. And so the scripture says they take him to a cliff and they intend to kill him. And the scripture doesn't expound how Jesus escapes. Uh, Some people would point out that something miraculous happened uh, because we see it in other scriptures where Jesus just goes through their midst, uh, where he kind of just disappears and they can't find him. Um, It could be pointed out that maybe he reasoned with them and maybe he said, uh, don't kill me now, now is not my time. Whatever the case is, what we do know is the people didn't like Jesus. And the people were willing to kill him in that moment and take care of it all. But we know that wasn't Jesus' time for death, and he's able to leave. You know what's interesting about that? Their willingness to kill him because he proclaims that he comes from God and is there to save them is exactly what Israel has done to their prophets. So what ends up happening is Jesus coming into his hometown, to proclaim that he is the Messiah, that he is going to set the captive free. He's going to heal the blind. He's going to heal the lame. He's going to, he's going to uh, give his people the love of God that they've been waiting for. When he comes in and proclaims that, and they don't believe, and they want to kill him, he's actually in good company. He, he's actually sitting in that moment among other prophets in Israel's history, where they came in to proclaim the good news of God, Israel didn't believe them and sought to kill them. And so what does this prove? Well, actually, according to Scripture, this moment proves that Jesus was the Messiah because people were willing to kill him over that proclamation. So much so that they were going to do it in that moment without a trial. Now, what does this mean for us today? Well, we still proclaim this gospel. We still proclaim, or gospel means good news. We still proclaim this good news as Christians that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. But you've probably already ran into this. Not everyone you tell this to is going to believe you. In fact, I, I guarantee most of you in this room have been in that situation where you've tried to share the gospel with somebody and they've not believed. And it's heart-wrenching, especially when you're close to that person and you want them to believe, but they just don't believe what you have to say. That is evidence that you are preaching the right gospel. That is actually evidence that God is with you and is speaking through you the truth of who he is, but whoever you're speaking to is not ready to receive that. And so they're like the people in the synagogue where they listen to it and it's not fulfilling their expectations of who they think God should be. What we get from Scripture is, keep preaching. Keep proclaiming that gospel to whoever you can because one day they're going to open up to it. One day God is going to get a hold of their heart and they're no longer going to say, prove it. They're no longer going to come in with cynicism, but God is going to work on them to the point where they're ready to hear the gospel and say, I believe. One of my favorite stories from church history comes from... Uh, the the 4th century, so long time ago, and it's when Christianity was finally getting out of persecution. It had spent about three full centuries under persecution from local communities, the Roman government, and so they had a really hard time meeting with one another. They could, uh, the early church could meet in local church groups, but it was hard for them to put together a council. We see a council that goes on in the book of Acts a few times, But then after that, it's hard for the church to come together. Well, in the 4th century, in the 300s, the church can finally do that. And so when they came to meet together, they came to answer the question, okay, what is it we really believe? And lo and behold, you actually found out that all the churches everywhere, because they were keeping the scriptures that were given to them by the apostles and the gospel that was given to them by the apostles, all of them agreed with one another as to what they what we believe as Christians. But in one of the scenarios, as they were talking about who Jesus was, there was one man named Athanasius, and, and he was adamant. He said, Jesus Christ was not made. He's eternal from God. It's very important in the Christian faith that, God, that uh, Jesus was not created by God, but he's the Son of God and has always been with him for all of eternity. And so Athanasius was adamant. Well, he had somebody against him called Arius, and Arius didn't believe that. And he fought tooth and nail for the church to believe that Jesus was created like any other person, but promoted to God. And they fought with one another constantly in these councils. And there was one moment where Arius said out loud to Athanasius, Athanasius, the world is against you. And his statement was, nobody here believes you. Nobody here believes that Jesus is from eternity. Everybody here believes that Jesus was created. And Athanasius' response to him was, then I am against the world. The point being, Athanasius didn't care what anybody else believed about his Savior. He knew the truth and he kept preaching the truth. And sure enough, after several council meetings, it was accepted that Arius didn't know what he was talking about, and Athanasius had the truth for all of them to believe. And that was the truth that everybody believed, that Jesus was the Son of God, not created. Why do I tell that story? We're going to run into those moments as Christians where we're proclaiming the gospel, we're proclaiming the truth, And there are going to be people around us that say the world is against you. Nobody believes what you have to say. That is proof enough that what we say is true and what we believe is true. What we pray for then is continued strength in those moments where we proclaim it, even though nobody believes. And we pray for those moments that God would speak on our behalf so that whoever is listening would hear his voice, not ours, and come to believe him. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the moments that you put us in where we have no choice but to tell others about you. I thank you for those moments, God, that uh, maybe we're asked difficult questions by people seeking who you are. And Lord, what I pray is that you would give us the answer to those difficult questions. But I would also pray, Lord, that even if we don't have those answers, we would still have our faith intact. And that faith would shine through, and people would see just how much you encompass our lives. So, God, as we leave this place and and we continue to live out your life in this community, we pray that those who haven't believed would begin to believe. And we pray that those who haven't been seeking would begin to seek. And we pray for those who aren't seeking that we would go after them and share your good news to their lives. Amen.